Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This is a science podcast for January 26, 2024. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, science newsletter editor Christy Wilcox. She joins me to talk about snake venom antidotes, a surprising job for a hangover enzyme, and crustaceans that spin silk. Next on the show, the cascading effects of an invading ant. Researcher Douglas Camaroo discusses how the disruption of a mutually beneficial relationship between native ants and trees in Kenya has led to lions changing their hunting strategies. Now we have newsletter editor, Christy Wilcox. Hi, Christy. Welcome back to the Science Podcast. Hi, Sarah. Great to be here. Yeah, I know it's been a minute since you've been on. And in between that time, you had we had our holiday. We had all this time off. And during that time, you put out these newsletters, these end-of-the-year wrap-ups. And I just want to tell you, I really liked it. I really liked seeing this. And, you know, I thought it was a good way to cover yourself because it's a daily and you have to go home sometime. And also just showcase some of the best stories of the year and the best research from the year. Listeners should really check out, you know, these lists from our research editors and from our news editors. There's just super interesting insights into the trends in the different fields. And then all the different news stories that our team broke and the investigations they did. It's just a lot of really cool stuff that you might have missed, even if you're a dedicated listener or a dedicated reader. So check that out. Christy, was there anything from those highlight emails, these end of the years that surprised you that you were really excited to get to surface? I mean, I think for me, what it was just such a rewarding experience because I really pressed everyone involved to to write something kind of personal, not nothing too deep, but something that really meant something to them beyond just the actual science that was performed. And they did such a splendid job of that. I mean, they just, they had these wonderful notes going along with it. Our online news editor, David Grimm, said that the piece that he wrote was perhaps the most important piece he's ever written in his entire 20-ish career at science. Wow. So like all those sort of personal anecdotes, to me, it was just the most amazing and incredible thing. Yeah, it is so nice when I can actually drag an editor onto here to talk to me about the work that they do, because like us, they're exposed to everything, but they have this really deep well of knowledge for their particular, for their beat or for their their people's beats. And their experience as editors is just really unique. So we're going to go on to the current moment now. You've brought us some more recent stories from the newsletter from the site. And I wanted to start with Snake Bites, which is a story that you actually wrote. 
And I really like this because it's about failure, not success. And it's so important that we talk about failures. Well, so what they were doing is they were trying to find an alternative to antivenom. So right now, if you're bitten by a venomous snake, your course of treatment will be what they call antivenom. And that is technically a mixture of antibodies from some animal. Yeah. I mean, and it's been that way for a hundred years, basically. Yeah, they take venom from a snake and they put it in an animal and then they harvest antibodies from the animal and then they dry them down and then they ship it out to hospitals. And that's pretty much what you get if you get bit by something super dangerous. It works fairly well, but because it comes from an animal, there are a pretty high number of allergic reactions. Oh, yeah. And those can be life-threatening. And so people only can really receive antivenom in a controlled hospital-y setting where, where you have doctors ready to, to help out if something goes wrong with it. Also, the antivenom has to be kept really cold, like they call it cold chain. And so it's, it's hard to get to really rural areas where, unfortunately, a lot of the deadly snake bites occur. And so there's a lot of groups around the world that are trying to fix this problem by coming up with new kinds of snake bite treatments. One of the ways they're doing that is looking at antibodies still, but antibodies that are either humanized or they call monoclonal, meaning they have a single target, but that are human essentially antibodies. So that way they don't have that animal protein or whatever in there that might trigger some sort of reaction in people. Okay, so which part of this did you end up writing about? So this team... They were really, really far along in the process of finding a really good antibody to, especially in this case, help deal with muscle damage from snake bites. Because even the antivenoms we have now, I mean, I think the papers that I read phrase it as largely ineffective against muscle damage. So they'll save your life, but they're not going to save your tissue. They're not going to save your leg or your arm necessarily. And is this for a specific snake? In this case, it was for uh, one of the toxins from... Bothrop's asper. It is a very nasty, nasty snake that's in Central and Northern South America, responsible for 95-ish percent of the bites in those areas. And it will leave these giant lesions, even when people receive antibiotics. So there's a toxin in it that messes with cell membranes, basically, and causes cells to bust open. And that's, that's how it causes all this nasty damage to the body. And so what they had found was an antibody. When they mixed it with this toxin, it shut down the toxin. So you start in cell cultures or whatever. They mix the antibody with this toxin, you know, in the dish with cells and the cells survive instead of dying. Great. Then they had moved on to animals. They mixed this antibody with this toxin or with the whole venom, injected it into animals. Same thing. It prevented the muscle damage. And it looked like it was like beautiful amazing, perfect. Like it was gearing up for clinical trials. They filed a patent and everything. Oh man, you're just driving us up right to the edge of the cliff. (laughs) (laughs) And then two days before the first author was about to turn in his dissertation, they had decided to do one last test. So they had just enough antibodies. And they're like, well, let's do something that looks a little bit more like a snake bite they decided to do what they call a rescue assay, which is where you inject the toxin or the venom in first, wait a certain amount of time, and then inject the treatment. And obviously you're gonna get less effectiveness, but the question is like, how, like, can you wait a little while and still see it working 
can still prevent the damage. Because you're never going to co-administer snake bite and antivenom in the wild, right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you might get, if you had a field stable antivenom, you might be able to get pretty quick with like an EpiPen style thing, but you're still not doing it at the exact same time. There's going to be a few minutes where you're like, ah, I got bit by a snake. Gotta fix that part first. Get away from me. Get away from me. Okay, now where's my treatment? <laughs> Thanks for the reenactment. Very, very scientific reenactment. Yeah. So they they did this rescue assay and it didn't work. And not only did it not work, it actually killed the mice. Oh. And it wasn't supposed to. They were just supposed to have muscle damage. They weren't supposed to die, even with just the toxin. Oh no. And so it made it like a lot worse. And they had to sort of like, grind all of their stuff to a halt and be like, wait, what's going on? And so then they went back and they ran more tests. And for some reason, and it's unclear why, when this antibody goes into the animal after the toxin, it ends up helping the toxin cause harm instead of preventing it. And so, I mean, obviously they're not moving into clinical trials right now or whatever, has something like this where the antibody aggravates the effect of the toxin, has that been seen before? There are cases, but they were like really sporadic and, and just one or two. What it has been seen before is in viruses and live bacteria. For example, dengue virus is one of the ones that does this. Some antibodies don't stop the virus from being a virus, but they do get the virus pulled into immune cells for destruction. And it's just like another ticket in for the virus because the virus needs to get in there to replicate. Sometimes you see they call it antibody-dependent enhancement of these viruses because they're getting pulled into the cell and then the virus is like, ha-ha, fooled you. I'm in here now. I'm going to replicate. And it does its thing. So is that what they think might be happening with this venom or with this toxin? And that's the thing is they actually don't know yet why it's causing this damage and why it's only doing it after the fact. When these antibodies are bound to the toxin beforehand, why aren't those also causing extra damage. So there's a lot of unknowns here, but they think it might have something to do with the fact that this toxin works at the sort of membrane level or might be working internally too. The reason that they went and published this paper anyway, even though it had this sort of spectacular failure, if you want to call it that, was that they wanted to alert everyone else working on monoclonal antibodies that this could be a thing with toxins, not just with viruses. There's a, a number of people working on these antibodies for snake bite, but there's also a lot of people just working on antibodies for everything. And so the idea that like, yeah. we need to be aware that if you don't run all the different kinds of assays early on, you might miss something. And have to rewrite your PhD. And have to rewrite the discussion anyway and, and yeah. you know, completely rewrite the paper, right? Like a yeah. totally different paper instead of it being like, yay, look at this amazing antibody we found. It's like, ah, we found something. Okay, Christy, the next story that we're going to talk about, let's go over to, I think I, I picked this one just for the headline. It's cheers to ALDH1B1, dot, dot, dot. So, this is actually about an enzyme that helps the body deal with alcohol, right? Yes, yes. So this enzyme, it's one of the steps in the breakdown of alcohol. So when you have an alcoholic beverage, you know, you've got all that ethanol and, and alcohol in there, and that's not great for you. And so there's an enzyme that breaks it down a little bit, but then that thing that it breaks it down into isn't good for you. And then this enzyme takes that and makes it far, far less toxic. And so it helps minimize the after effects of alcohol. The hangover cure that your body has. It certainly helps treat a hangover. 
in that sense. It helps your body get rid of this nasty stuff that it doesn't want in it. But what was really cool is that they found out that it also helps you fight viruses. Yeah. Another immune story, actually. So this enzyme, which we thought had something to do with these byproducts of byproducts in the body's job of removing ethanol from the system, also has a day job. When we're not drinking, it's doing something else. Yeah, yeah. And what they found is that if they took it away, that cells were just really, really susceptible to viruses. And so they're going to look into it more, but it seems to be helping support this innate immune system defenses. So the defenses that we have that are always there and not specific to a pathogen. Very cool. All right. I'm going to just speed on by to the next story, which I thought was so cool. I had no idea reading this headline or reading this story that there were crustaceans, that there are sea creatures in the ocean that make silk, like spiders, like moths. They're out there making this really interesting protein that I don't even know what they do with this. Is this is this a new finding that there are crustaceans that make silk? I think it was known by the people that know these crustaceans well, that they have seen these, you know, fibers, but it wasn't really talked about. I mean, especially in the silk community, when you're talking about the people that study silkworms or the people that study spider silk, like they weren't really thinking about any other groups of animals that might be making something similar. And so that's what's really cool about this story from Liz Panisi is just that there are these weird little almost shrimpy looking creatures that also make silk. And what does their silk, you know, look like in, in bulk? If you were to pull it out and have a, you know, a bunch of this stuff, what would those threads look like? What properties would they have? We don't really know yet. Does it interact differently with water, right? Because Right. Maybe you could have a waterproof silk scarf. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I just think it's really cool because, yeah, obviously it is functioning in an underwater environment, in a salty environment. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff going on here that you don't see with regular silks. And so the question is, what? how is it different and, and is that useful to us potentially? I mean, we right now are engineering spiders and silkworms and things to make super strong silks that are stronger than Kevlar and, and all of these specialty sort of materials that we're trying to get these animals to make or, or we're trying to make inspired by these animals because of taking proteins from them and then using them in our own ways. And so it just opens up a whole new category of silks that they could potentially be using. Do we know anything about how these little sea creatures use silk? underwater? What they're doing is they're tethering themselves to their environment. Now, why exactly they need this, you know, how it benefits them versus just hanging on tight? I'm not sure I know, but I'm sure somebody is looking into it. I'm so excited to see, you know, a new thread of silk research coming out of this. Okay, Christy, that's all we really have time to talk about today in depth. Is there anything else that's coming out in the next few days or that has come out recently that we should mention that people should go check out? Well, there's a really great story that came out about pets eating you after you die. <laughs> uh, what I find interesting about it is the study isn't yes or no, because the answer is yes. We already knew that. <gasps> they will, if they're hungry, they're going to eat you. Sorry. It's just going to happen. But what's interesting about it is that this is actually a really big issue for forensic science and people trying to understand what's going on when they find a person's body, you know, somewhere. With a pet. Well, with a pet, yeah. And it's been disturbed by that pet in some way, then they might miss, say, clues about the cause of death or something like that. So this is why every meeting about this 
story has said there are pictures, but they are offsite. Yes. Because this sounds a little bit gruesome. And the pictures are gruesome. I actually had the curiosity, just enough curiosity to check it out. And they are as gruesome as you would expect. What animals do they, do they talk about cats and dogs? Do they go into birds too? Lizards? They primarily talk about cats and dogs, but there was one hamster. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that one was a special, special case. Oh my gosh. What directions scientists have to go in to understand the world? All right. Thank you so much for that, Christy. Really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you for having me. Christy Wilcox is the editor for our newsletter, Science Advisor. To find links to these stories and the newsletter, visit science.org slash podcast. And if you want to look at those end of year newsletters that I mentioned, just scroll to the bottom of science.org slash advisor, and there'll be a link to past issues. Stay tuned for a chat with researcher Douglas Camaru about a cascading connection between ants and lions. Researchers at Queen's University Belfast translate research into action and make sense of a rapidly changing world. They keep up with technological, societal, and economic advances and drive change through collaboration and real-world partnerships. Their research leads to critical breakthroughs in areas such as green technology, food and agricultural sustainability, peacebuilding, and healthcare. Queen's University Belfast network of international researchers has a reputation for global excellence. Over 99% of their research was assessed as world-leading or internationally excellent in REF 2021. The impact of this research is felt around the world. Visit qub.ac.uk to find out how Queen's University Belfast is bringing research to reality. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, Upload your resume or CV to the searchable database or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. Mutualism, I scratch your back, you scratch mine, is a fundamental relationship in many ecosystems. Think photosynthesizing cells and corals working together to build reefs. This mutually beneficial relationship creates an environment that serves as a home base and hunting grounds for many other organisms. This week in science, Douglas Camaru and colleagues wrote about mutualism between a tiny ant and a spiny tree that appears to affect a range of large species, from elephants to zebras to lions. Hi, Douglas. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Thank you very much, Sarah. Sure. So take us to this place. Where are these specialized ants and trees helping one another out? What what was the the focal point for your research? What we did, actually, we looked at mutualism of whistling down tree and native ants. What usually happens is the whistling down tree provide food uh, in form of extra flora nectar. 
and the native ants defend the tree from herbivores, particularly by elephant. Okay, so our mutualistic pair is the whistling thorn, which is a kind of acacia tree, and its friend, the native acacia ant. How does this tiny ant defend a tree against an elephant? So they come out uh, in number and they can bite animals and they, the elephant uh, keeps on uh, them. The tree gives special extra food to ants and the ants hang out in the tree. They have a colony there and then they bite an elephant if it tries to eat the leaves of the tree. Correct. Where in the world are we where we're seeing these elephants and trees and ants interacting? What was your study site like? Yeah, my study site was uh, in East Africa, Kenya, in Orpegeta Conservancy. We're in this place with the ants and the trees helping each other out. And here comes a perturbation. There is this invasive ant that is happy to make the tree its home, but it doesn't bring the same benefits as the native ant. Correct, correct. Doesn't give any, yeah, doesn't protect tree. What usually happens with the big-headed ants? The invader? Yeah, they numerically overwhelmed and completely exterminate native ants. And then, of course, by killing adult ants and consuming native ants' eggs, larvae and pupae, as I said again, however, big-headed ants do not protect whistling thorn tree from herbivores, and therefore that's increasing the vulnerability of invaded trees to bouncing by elephants. And of course, in invaded areas, you have elephants breaking trees. There are some studies that was done that showed that elephants in these areas that they have big-headed ants, you know, break trees up to five to seven times the rate of that in an invaded areas. Mm, so we know from that, this is one of the first cascading effects we can see of this disturbed mutualism between the ant and the tree. What is the next cascading steps? You know, if elephants are now breaking these trees, they aren't being protected by their ant guardians. You looked further and said, how might this affect lions and their primary prey, zebras? Like, why did you think there would be a change or could be a change after seeing what was going on with the elephants and the trees? What happens is that once these trees are vulnerable, this leads to more open landscapes characterized by high visibility. And knowing that, of course, lions are ambush predators and have specialization for prey capture. And this is through concealment, stalking, and as, of course, they do sudden attack. And therefore, stalking of prey is a major significant success of prey capture by lions. So if these trees are thinned out, if there are fewer trees because of the elephants, you're worried that ambush predators like lions might not be able to stalk their prey and surprise their prey and kill their prey. That's correct. Whistling down tree covers about 40% of trees in my study area. We looked at then how then does big-headed ants invasion promote visibility? Then big-headed ants invasion shape lion zebra dynamics. So yeah, this is, this is a really cool part of your study. You wanted to see what lions were eating. How were you able to keep track of that? What, what kinds of data did you collect? We actually had a couple of methods that we used. We did investigation of where the lions are killing. We had about six plots of lions that we collected. We used those clusters to investigate where they're killing. So we could be able to tell, you know, what species each pride actually killed at, at any given time. So when you looked at these prides with lions that had collars on, did they seem to be killing fewer zebras in places where invasive ants had helped elephants to browse and break and clear the trees? <laughs> absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. The results show that in areas that are invaded by big-headed ants, the zebra kill occurrence was around 2.87 lower compared to areas that are 
uninvaded by these particular ants. What did they do? Did you see a decline in lions since they weren't able to, to snack on zebras? No, the lions were not, were not declining. Another result that we are trying to show here is that actually the lions actually shifted their diet to eating more buffaloes. Lions' population remains stable over time, and we used some data that is long-term data over 18 years. That data actually showed that the lion diet shifted towards buffalo. As we're saying, trees cover declined. Okay, so let me try that. So trees go down, there's more clear space, and then the zebra are less likely to be killed and buffalo are more likely to be killed by lions. Correct. Okay. <laughs> there's so many moving levers. Yeah. There's so many like <laughs> downstream effects. It's so interesting. I think you said somewhere in your paper that buffalo are a more challenging hunt, that they are like a little bit more dangerous to chase down. Is that is that why they were not the preferred prey until zebra got harder to, to stalk and kill? That's correct. Lions will always go to an animal that's going to kill Israel. Buffaloes will always try to fight back. Okay, so the buffalo are tough, but at least they can have some food if they Correct. catch one. One of the things that's going to change is if lions are predating on buffalo rather than zebra, zebra might start overeating their normal food, and that might change the community. Or buffalo might stop eating as much of their food. You know, so is there anything we should think about when it comes to you know, the plants? We're not expecting zebra population to increase that much. And this is because zebra's numbers within our system seem to be controlled by food and water rather than predation. That is a reason like keep you. And therefore, we'll expect actually uh, the zebra numbers will not be influenced much by predation. And therefore, I don't think it's going to increase. What does this say about the importance of mutualism? Like now that we are starting with ants and trees and getting all the way to zebra, buffalo and lions, you know, what does this mean? in terms of those kinds of relationships? Like, should we pay more attention to them? Should we look for these kinds of perturbations in other places? So uh, we know that mutualism is a type of symbiotic relationship. Mutualisms are among the most widespread and economically important species interactions. And of course, another important to note is that every species on Earth participate in one or more mutualism. And therefore, our disruption can erode biodiversity through a combination of direct loss of species, altered flow of mass and energy through ecological communities, and of course, the inhibition of evolutionary trajectories. We need to pay more, more attention to this motorism because already we've seen how important they are to ecosystems. That means we have this kind of scenario happening, those motorism being affected, that can cause cascading issues to a whole ecosystem on other, other species as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can really see the parallels with the reef. You know, these, there's a mutualism that creates the reef and it creates these hunting grounds and these hiding places. And here you have the tree and the ant working together to create some hiding and some hunting for lions and zebras. But once that mutualism is disturbed, it, it just cascades through many, many different levels. It's really interesting. Correct. What is going to happen when these ants move further out? The lion ants just going to keep progressing all over Kenya and maybe further out? Or do you see this mutualism or even other ones being disturbed by that? Perhaps, yes. We need to do more studies <laughs> to find out whether these uh, ants are somewhere else within systems and how they're spreading towards other systems within Kenya. Uh, what we know is like they are there in the study field uh, where we are doing our study. 
and also other, a bit of other parts within the KPI. Thank you so much, Douglas. Thank you, Sarah, very much. I very much appreciate it. Sure. Douglas Cameroo is a PhD student at the University of Wyoming in the Department of Zoology and Physiology. You can read the research paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. To find us on the podcasting apps, search for Science Magazine. Or you can listen on the website, science.org slash podcast. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Megan Tuck at Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.